You're listening to episode 122 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? Thank you so much to all of you who left a rating and a review for 88 Cups of Tea. I know it's a whole process to get through all the steps, and it means the world to us that you took the time. And thank you so much to our awesome listener, Andy Owen, for the super sweet review. She rated us five stars and wrote, First off, when I publish a book, it will be dedicated to Yin. I manage a Barnes & Noble, write, read, and travel. Being creative is my life, and this podcast has invigorated my soul in so many ways. Yin interviews a variety of authors, agents, and other creative individuals that makes them accessible to listeners. It always feels like a conversation between friends. Being a part of this world has honestly changed my drive. Each week, I am excited for new podcasts, being a part of the Facebook group, and knowing I have a support system that shows up to encourage each other. Best podcast ever. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to leave such a wonderful review. I am so thankful to have listeners like you in our community, and thank you for being so wonderful in our private Facebook group too. Now on to the next part of our intro, you just heard us talk about our private Facebook group. In case you're curious, it's a space for fellow listeners and storytellers to connect and hang out. We have weekly threads where we check in with each other about storyteller-related things, and I also chat very closely with our group members to involve them with our podcast and community related decisions that help shape the growth and direction of 88 cups of tea, including, but not limited to, requests for who you'd love to hear next on the show and live video catch-ups and book unboxings. If these are things that jump out at you, we would love to hang out with you in our group at 88cupsoftea.com slash FB group. It's so fun in there and I'm really proud to share that our group is filled with the kindest and most caring members. Join us over at 88cupsoftea.com slash FB group. Now on to our guest. I am thrilled to have John Boyne on our show. John is the author of over 15 books and short stories. His New York Times bestselling novel, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, was an international bestseller selling more than 9 million copies worldwide. In today's episode, we discuss his newest novel, The Heart's Invisible Furies, a New York Times reader's favorite books of 2017. We kick off the conversation by having John take us back to the earliest memory of how he first fell in love with storytelling. He shares the inspiration behind The Heart's Invisible Furies and walks us through his unique structure of the novel. We go into detail about the history of human rights activism in Ireland, what his creative research process is like, and how he discovers fresh ideas for his stories. We also discuss how the important role humor can play in a historical novel, how to create emotional distance when writing about darker topics, and advice on finding your own voice and style of writing. Be sure to check out John's show notes page to download the exclusive writing prompt he created just for our community. Head over to his show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash John dash Boyne and scroll all the way to the bottom till you see a box that says writing prompt. Now let's dive right in. Hey everyone, I am so freaking excited. We have John Boyne here today. John, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you. It's so exciting to have you on and there's so 
many listeners in our community who are such huge fans of your work. They're so excited and pumped to have you on too. That's lovely to hear. Thank you. Our show format usually runs a little longer, but John was so sweet to give us some time. This is going to be about a half hour and we're going to get through as much as we can. We usually like to start really rewind and I love asking how you first fell in love with storytelling. I remember that as a kid, there was a really good library down the road from the house I grew up in. And because I got a half day from school every Wednesday, my mum used to bring me down there to get out three books every week. And even as a child, the acts of reading and writing were always completely connected to me. So even as I was reading, I was also taking characters maybe from those stories and writing new stories for them. I found in common with a lot of writers, I had a sort of a stationary fetish, you know, so um, I loved paper and pens. And I don't remember a time where I actively decided to be a writer it was just always part of who i was oh wow and were your parents encouraging about this they were yeah i mean i guess even though they would be more sort of traditional types in the sort of get a job get a pen i think the fact that i was actively doing it helped them kind of be supportive because they could see that it wasn't just something i was talking about as a random fantasy it was they i was in my room i was writing i was sending once i hit my teenage years i was sending stories out i was getting occasional stories published in magazines and things so They could see that I was taking it quite seriously and supported me because of that. That's really ambitious at such a young age. You're right. You put in the work and they see it. It's hard to say no. Well, yeah. I also have to jump in and say I also have a fetish for stationery. So don't you worry about it. I was so excited whenever school started because that meant shopping for new stationery. And it was the best time ever. Oh, I was exactly the same. (laughs) You know, I still, you know, got lost in the stationery shop for hours on end. Me too. I'm just right there. I'm like, oh, look at these pencils. Oh, now they're shiny. I look at these little encouraging words. I get so excited about it. Okay, so that's amazing. And then you ended up studying in school, of course, as well for writing. And how was your time there? Yeah, I did. My original first degree was an English degree in Trinity College in Dublin. And then I went to England to study a creative writing program um, for a year under Malcolm Bradbury. Uh, I was quite young when I did it. I was 22. And it was kind of a strange experience because it was very helpful being in a room with 12 people who all wanted to be writers. But at the same time, there was a very competitive element to that. And because it was my first time outside of Ireland and because I was the youngest in the group, I'm not sure I was emotionally ready for it at the time. But at the same time, you know, when I came away from the year, I felt it was good because I think I went there feeling that I was great, you know, because I published some stories and I came out of it feeling that I had so much I needed to learn still, that a lot of my work was quite derivative. You know, I was writing what I guess was my J.D. Salinger story or my Philip Roth story or imitating people. And I hadn't actually found my own voice. So I think what that year did for me was teach me that you can be a good mimic, but eventually you have to have your own voice and your own style of writing. Very, very humbling. From there, I know that you mentioned in that year, you realized you needed to find also your own voice. Do you remember that one moment where you're like, oh, wow, this is not working? I can remember times where I would submit something to workshop that I thought was amazing. Mm. And everybody would look at and go, you know, this just it doesn't sound like the person we know. And it reminds me of this book or this writer and when you hear that often enough eventually you kind of have to accept it and you realize yeah you're probably right and also you know there's the feeling of you're reading all this work by other like young writers and it does seem so much more original maybe so it was a humbling experience but i think that's a very helpful one for a a young kid to go through oh absolutely our community is made up mostly of beginner writers aspiring writers and we have some published writers as well and this is something also i've gone through workshop and i had trouble finding 
my voice. And I also took a workshop where my teacher really made me feel very humbled, if you know what I mean. Yes. I got my butt handed to me pretty harshly. And I realized, wow, and I kind of had the same realization. I'm at the point where I'm still struggling finding my voice. Do you have any advice that you can share for our community or people are going through something like what I'm going through? I think you have to ignore the marketplace completely. You know, stop thinking about what's selling and what agents, you know, when you look online and you see what agents are interested in, what publishers are interested in, um, stop thinking about it right in that way. I've always believed, and I think you have to believe, that good writing will find its audience and that if you write something authentic from the heart that there's nothing so different nothing so experimental nothing so unusual that if you write it like in a beautiful way that it, it that it, it won't find that right agent editor and then hopefully readership ultimately and i think too many people sort of sometimes do look at the market and think this is what's selling now or this is what publishers are interested in publishers in my experience are just interested in good writing simple mm, as that that was good let's jump in to what are you excited about right now in your work? Well, of course, I finished The Hearts and Biz. I finished writing it a good sort of half ago. So um, since then, I've been working on the new novel. And uh, I've been working pretty hard on that over the last 18 months. So I'm excited about that. I, I guess writers are always excited about what's coming up next. You're like back to back. You don't take breaks. I don't take time off. They used to say about um, the novelist Anthony Trollope that if he finished a book at 4.30 in the afternoon, he'd start the next one at 4.45. Jeez. I'm not quite as bad as that. I wouldn't take much time off. You know, I write full time. And uh, when I finish a book, I've got nothing else to do other than start the next one, you know. So, But writers are all different in that way. Some people need to take a long time off um, between books. I prefer to just kind of keep moving on to the next one. Before we jump into the Hearts Invisible Furies, where are these ideas always coming out from? Are you reading newspapers for inspiration? It's so inspiring to me because here I am sitting with the same idea for years and here you are just like whipping and pulling out ideas that actually executing in my experience if you are reading and writing all the time if your brain is just engaged with fiction constantly then you become more attuned to ideas i've been fortunate that i'm i seem to have a good imagination i get a lot of ideas most of them won't go anywhere you know i'll make a note of them most of them won't be any good to use but there'll be one every so often that will just stay in my mind and kind of jump up and down and say this needs to be written and i just think anybody who is reading and writing constantly you're listening when you're out on the streets or on a bus or on a tram or on a plane or you're just more aware of the world around you i think that's a very good point now let's jump in to the hearts invisible furies and for those listeners who have not had the chance to pick up a copy yet could you please give them a snapshot of it yeah it's a novel that takes place over 70 years between 1945 and 2015 in ireland and it charts the how the country has changed socially over that time um, it finishes a couple of months after. I'm sure many of your listeners will be aware that in 2015, we had the equal rights marriage referendum mm -hmm. and became the first country in the world to vote by public plebiscite for equal rights marriage. And Ireland, of course, has such a history of Catholicism and conservatism. And also it was a country that um, homosexuality wasn't decriminalized until 1993. So I was interested in how does a country change so much in such a short space of time? So I take a character, Cyril Avery, and follow his life from the end of the Second World War when he's born until a few months after that referendum. And through him, I tried to kind of chart my own country and how it has changed over 70 years. Why did this idea come to you at that moment? Because I know it's been a change through that time, but why was it specifically then that you decided to write the story? Well, I guess about a year before I started writing it, there was a lot of talk about that referendum possibly happening. And it was in the news here, it was in on the radio here a lot. And of course, as with any subject like that, 
you're going to hear two sides of an argument. You're going to hear people on the radio and in chat shows, um, those who are opposed and those who are uh, for it. Even the fact that it was, even though it felt to everybody that it was going to get passed, uh, mm -hmm. it did seem, I wasn't so much interested in the fact that it was going to get passed as in the fact that it was going to happen at all. I'd written a novel about Ireland just before that, A History of Loneliness, which was about the Catholic Church in Ireland and about the child abuse scandals. And it was the first novel I'd written which was set in Ireland. And I guess there was still a part of me that felt I had a lot more stories about my own country to tell. And it was just kind of the right time, the right place to write this. How close is Cyril's character to you? How much are you pulling from your own experiences? We certainly have similarities. I mean, he's a lot older than I am, firstly, but he realizes at an early age that he's gay, um, as did I, and in a society at a time when that is not, well, firstly, it's not legal. And, you know, you can be the focus of violence and intimidation. You know, when I was growing up, I was a teenager, say, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, that was, was still quite a scary thing to be. To be gay was uh, to be breaking the country's laws. So it doesn't make you feel very good as a teenager. It makes you feel sort of like, well, you know, I didn't ask for this. This is just the way I was born. Why is there such negativity about it? I there's a lot of that in it. Um, now, I think it would have been worse for Cyril in the, he's growing up sort of in the 60s and 70s, when it was probably even worse still. Uh, but I guess a lot of my experiences would have come into that. Other than that, I guess, you know, he grows up in Dublin. I grew up in Dublin. There would be a lot about the streets I grew up on, um, the experiences I had in school and so on. Um, so I think, you know, most novels probably have some autobiographical element. But other than that main theme, I wasn't seeking to make it particularly autobiographical. I'm particularly drawn to this because I'm with a woman. I came out to my mom over three years ago. Actually, came out to my entire family. Of course, traditionally Asian, they're not cool with it, especially because they're not Asian American. It wasn't the best reception at first, but now it's like night and day and they're completely cool and accepting of it and very loving. I know that I'm lucky with that, although I don't like to use the word luck. We are who we are. But for you growing up, were you open? Did you come out to your family? What was that like? I did when I was about 20, I'd say. I told them then. And the reception was fine, to be honest. You know, they were very loving about it. I guess their response then would have been more fear about what could happen to me, um, whether I would be happy in life, whether I would be lonely. Right. Um, you know, also remember, you know, in the late 80s, this was a period where AIDS was such a, a Huge, major yeah. mm -hmm. And, you know, most of us were pretty uninformed about it. And people thought maybe you would just catch AIDS by having sex or something. And it just the two virgins could have sex and yeah. get AIDS. You know, people just didn't really understand things very much. What I have found is that, and maybe this is your experience too, is that most people these days do have an out gay family member or a friend. And as heterosexual people have seen that more in their lives and known people and loved people who are gay, it's no longer such a intimidating or scary or upsetting thing for them. And people are much more accepting. And certainly in the younger generation, I see with my nephews and nieces that the idea of homophobia would be like, if a friend of theirs made a homophobic comment, it would be like making a racist comment or an anti-Semitic comment. I mean, they would be shunned um, instantly. So I think things are generally more positive now than they were, say, when I was a kid. I know here in America, compared to a lot of other countries, it is a lot more accepting and open. But the thing is, I still notice that the atmosphere isn't as accepting as it makes it out to be in news. For you, when you said in your country, the laws changed, it's a huge 
Catholic background. I'm sure it's like on paper, it says one thing, but what was the atmosphere like? One big difference would be America is obviously a, a much bigger place than Ireland. And it seems looking at it from a distance, geographical distance, it almost seems to be many countries put together. Um, you know, the America of California is not the America of uh, Georgia. No America, yeah. <laughs> Um, it seems to me that particularly over the last year that the rise of intentionally negative and hostile remarks in America is very disturbing. Here in Ireland, it's a much smaller country. I put it this way. I wouldn't necessarily walk down Grafton Street in Dublin on Saturday night at one in the morning, hand in hand with a guy. Mm. I think you're only looking for trouble. But would I pretend to be anything other than I'm not? No. But I don't think one goes out looking for trouble I see and i imagine there are places in america where the same thing would be said where you never know if a drunk is around or somebody who is just stupid and uninformed and bigoted there's no point, there's no point trying to provoke people why do you think it's changed so quickly in ireland it seems like things were dismantled a bit and the laws changed i think there was two major things the first thing that happened was in 1990 when we elected mary robinson as president and she was the first woman to be elected mm. president. She was also the first person who wasn't part of the traditional ruling party. She was a, a very liberal person, uh, a barrister, human rights um, lawyer. And she brought a sweeping change into the country. She was elected. Um, she said herself on the United she was elected that she owed so much to Manola Heron, the women of Ireland. And uh, it was a time when the women of Ireland really came out from underneath their husband's shadows, really, and voted. So that was a change. And then that led almost automatically, I think, in the mid-90s to the point where victims of child abuse in the church felt empowered and felt the courage to go to the guards, go to the police, tell their stories and begin a process that took about 20 years of changing the religious um, autocracy in this country from being, you know, a, a society and a government which was very much ruled by the church to becoming a one where church and state became much more separated. I think once that began, once that process began, that 20 years of trial, you know, every time you opened the newspaper or looked on the news, there would be another trial of another priest. And I think the older generation felt that an organization to which they had devoted so much of their lives had betrayed them. A younger generation grew up feeling that this was not an institution that they ever felt any connection to. So come the moment of a referendum, all of those people went out and said, actually, we want to vote. It's actually almost not about, you know, equal rights, marriage or gay people or anything. They wanted to vote for a change in the country. They wanted to vote that the way we viewed ourselves as a people would be different. Boiling that all down into 600 pages, what was that like? Well, it was actually great fun um, and writing novels really fun and the thing is even though it's such a serious topic this novel is a comic novel for the most part um, and Cyril our narrator is I mean he's a bit of a bumbling guy you know he's very optimistic in life even though terrible things keep happening to him but he keeps trying to put his best foot forward and but he just keeps getting into scrapes along the way and because it's 600 pages long I knew I couldn't make it but like just a misery fest all the way through early on in the, in the chapters which relate to his childhood i make them quite comic with his adoptive parents and i think it was the right tone to take with such a long novel i really enjoyed it and 
I do think, you know, as hard work as writing novels is, I think we should always enjoy the the process of writing them. Otherwise, readers are reading them. Yes, thank you for saying that. Because again, we have a community of writers. So it's so nice for them to hear that. Because a lot of them have jumped into writing historical novels and sometimes it gets a bit heavy. So that's very helpful. It always sort of frustrates me when I hear published writers who complain about it, you know, and who say, yes. oh, I hate writing. It's so hard. I wish I didn't have to do it. And, you know, I always feel like saying to them, well, like, don't. Yeah. You know, the world isn't going to fall off its axis if um, <laughs> you don't. And there are so many people out there with stories to tell and who maybe haven't been fortunate enough to find a publisher. And remember, in looking for a publisher in the first place, you need talent, you need um, ability, but there's also an element of luck involved, you know, if finding the right person at the right time. And so it frustrates me when I hear writers kind of complain about the privileges that they have received. Mm, that was powerful. John, I know that we only have a few minutes left. Would it be all right if I wrap it up with some listener questions? Sure, yes, yes. And I would love to segue into Olivia Christine Lavallee's question. She says, do you have any tips for writers when researching dark moments in history? How do we keep it from having an emotional toll on us? And I'm sure she's probably referring to the boy in the striped pajamas. From your own experiences, could you share a bit about that? Yeah, I think as the writer, you have to keep Keep some sort of emotional distance from the story itself. You're not, if you're, if you're not to be sitting there at the desk, you know, weeping onto your laptop. You have to be thinking about character and authenticity and theme and plot and dialogue, the structure of the novel, and not about sort of um, manipulating the reader into feeling an emotional response, but just writing, the, you know, writing the most interesting prose that you can write that should just naturally spur that. Um, we do have to write about dark moments in history, but. It's the beauty of the language and the authenticity of the themes that we should be aiming at, I think. Thank you for that. Next, we have Emily Wynn. She's wondering how you figured out how to structure the Hearts Invisible Furies. It's so large in scope and covers so much. How did you organize it and ensure there were stakes and tension? Well, I had come up with this idea following Cyril at every seventh year of his life and to see where he was. Apparently, every seven years, we, we shed our own skin. And, you know, new skin grows. So we, we almost become a different body every seven years. And I figured, you know, every seven years, your life is in a completely different place. So each chapter, there would be a running story through the novel, but each chapter could be almost self-contained as well with its own, you know, who is Cyril when he's 14, when he's 21, when he's 28. It was a nice structure to use because as well, if I got to the end of a chapter and something major and dramatic had happened, well, in the next chapter, he's already seven years later, so he's already over it. You know, I didn't necessarily always have to, to deal with the repercussions of every mistake that he made instantly. Thank you for that. I'm going to end it off with a last listener question. Catherine Locke, she says she'd love to hear your research process and how you picked your protagonist's point of view and why did you pick these specific characters to tell these stories? We basically covered that last question. How about more about the research process? I've written a lot of books which are set in the past, and I don't start with nonfiction. What I start with is I read novels uh, which were written at that time um, in that place. So I wrote a novel like The House of Special Purpose, which is set in the years leading up to the Russian Revolution. So I would read Russian novels from the time, mostly to kind of catch the idiom of the time and how people, like things like, you know, does a man stand up when a woman walks into a room? You know, how do they travel? What do they wear? What do they eat? What times do they eat? Um, and I find if you just read novels from the time, you will find that information in a much more um, authentic way than you will necessarily from nonfiction. Now, when I start writing, though, I don't like to spend a lot of time in advance doing research. I, I, I prefer to just get a story down on page 
uh, because I find that I don't know what I don't know, if you understand me, Mm -hmm. until I get to the end of that draft. And once I have that there, then I can go maybe to the place I'm writing about, um, do more research, maybe read whatever biographies I need to read. But I like to have like a basic story down on the page that I can work from. Mm, That was good. John, you have been so amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Tell us where to find you. And also, if there's any books that have impacted you and you want our community to check it out for themselves. I have a website, um, www.johnboyne.com. And I'm on Twitter at John underscore Boyne. And I guess in terms of books that I love, well, this book, The Hearts of Visible Furies, is dedicated to John Irving, um, the American writer, who has been, from the age I was like about 15, and I started reading John Irving's work, he has been my absolute literary hero. And subsequently, he became something of a mentor and a great friend to me. I sent him a copy of my very first novel in 2000 when it was published, a fanboy letter, basically, about how he influenced me. And we became good friends after that. So I'm sure most of your listeners will have read many of John Irving's books anyway, but he's always worth checking out. And that wraps up our episode with John Boyne. John, thank you for a lovely conversation. And I'm thrilled our listener had a chance to learn from you. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please say hi to John over on Twitter at John underscore Boyne and head over to his show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash John dash Boyne. Don't forget to scroll all the way down in his show notes page for his writing prompt that he created just for our community. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask you for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before. And we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much in advance for helping us grow our community. And if you haven't yet, don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow storytellers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.